In Acts chapter 3, the church has prayed and has worshipped and has shared all things in common. And now we come to Acts chapter 3 and Peter and John are headed for a prayer meeting. We need to be careful what we pray for. We'll see as we go through the book of Acts that sometimes they pray for things that I don't think any American Christian would pray for. But one of the things that I think any of us who are serious about the Lord that we're praying about is praying for God to send revival. And in verse, I think it's 19 of Acts chapter 3, is one of the greatest definitions of revival, seasons or times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. That's a good definition of revival. And, and we pray for revival, and we pray for God to move. And revival is not so much a new work of God as it is a restoring of the biblical work of God and putting God in His rightful place in our lives and in our church. And when we do that, we have revival. Roy Hessian, in his book, The Calvary Road, said, Revival is not going down the street with a big drum. It's going back to Calvary with a big sob. Revival is not something that's bombastic, that's worked up. Sometimes there are evidences of revival that are that, but revival is really the presence of God coming down on a body of believers and in the life of a church. I want us to look at three things from Acts chapter 3 tonight. If God is going to work and if God is going to move, then these three things are important for us to understand. First of all, we must die to self if we're going to point people to Christ. We must die to self if we're going to point people to Christ. Because it's not about us. It's not about... You know, me, somebody said to uh, D.L. Moody one day, Moody was walking down the street of Chicago, and he ran into a guy who was uh, obviously drunk, and he said, somebody said to him, Dr. Moody, there's one of your converts. He said, well, it's one of mine. It's certainly not one of the Lord's. We have to die to self so that we can point people to Christ. Acts chapter 3 and beginning in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going to the temple in the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. He wanted some money. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were all filled with wonder and amazement 
at what had happened to him. Luke takes this as the first miracle or sign or wonder that he points out. Of all the things that were happening in those early days of the church, Luke points this one out. And I think he points it out because miracles always point to Jesus. Miracles never point to miracles. God didn't give miracles so that people would be impressed with miracles. He gave miracles so that people would be impressed with Him. And God gives this miracles and they begin to preach a sermon as a result of this miracle. Now Peter and John were going to the temple to pray. It was not until later in the church that the church began to move out from the temple. But in those early days, they still went and practiced the Jewish custom of going to the temple to pray. And it was the hour of prayer. Paul says now, you are the temple of God. The book of Hebrews says that the temple was just a building. It was no longer the place where God resided because God now resides in us. And Peter and John are walking to the place of prayer and, and they notice this man who had been there every day. It wasn't anything new. But this man is there and he's begging alms. He wants some money. I'm afraid that sometimes we, like maybe Peter and John had done in days before, when we see somebody who is in need, we tend to be like the priest and the Levite in the story of the Good Samaritan and to pass by on the other side. Uh, we don't want to be inconvenienced. Uh, we don't want to be delayed. Uh, we don't want to touch the dirt and the filth of this world. And yet if we're to be like Christ, we need to have our eyes open for opportunities that God gives us to minister. It is possible that, and I'm not saying it's emphatic, I'm just saying it's possible that Peter and John didn't have any money because they had done in Acts chapter 2 what the Scriptures record. They had sold all their possessions and given them to those who were in need, so they were broke. They just didn't have anything. It's not that, that they didn't want to, but there was nothing left to give. They had given everything to this man, and so they look at him and they say, look at us. And there is this sense of expectation. This man is expecting to receive something from them, verse 5 says. And, you know, there is a sense in which many people come to church and never expect to receive anything. There's, there's never a sense of expectation. Uh, we sing the songs, we listen to the sermons, we go through the motions, uh, we do everything that we do, but, but there's not that sense in us that God might want to do something in our lives. Look at us. Expectation, focus. I mean, I guarantee you, they had this man's undivided attention. Maybe he had heard Peter's sermon Maybe he had heard about the results of the sermon of Simon Peter, but whatever the reason, they had his attention. Now, just a word, this is free, it doesn't cost you anything. Just a word, that's why I sit in the front wherever I go. Because when I sit in the front, I never see who leaves behind me. Right? I mean, you know, I, I don't see, I didn't know, you know, if anybody is getting up and moving, if some guy's you know, putting the move on his girl in church and puts his arm around. I never see that because it's all going on behind me, like it's going on behind me right now. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I never see it. That's why I sit in the front, because the further back you sit, the more distracted you are. The night of the Awana, uh, not the Awana, the Upwards Awards, I stood in the back and watched. And you know what I saw? 
I couldn't keep my focus on the magician because I kept seeing people squirming, moving. You know, some of you, if you'd sit closer up to front, you'd get more out of the sermons. Just a thought. That's free. I'm going to move on now before I get rocks thrown at me. Look at us. Now, here's, notice this. What Peter is saying is, I don't have what you want, silver and gold. But I do have what you need, Jesus Christ. I don't have what you want. The world wants a lot of things and doesn't know what it needs. I don't have what you want, but I do have what you need. And he performs an undeniable, unexplainable miracle. Now what happened? Peter and John admitted their personal bankruptcy and relied on the total sufficiency of Christ. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. Now, here's the problem with liberalism and with communism. Liberalism... Extreme liberalism and communism will say, if we just feed people and educate people and clothe people, they'll be better. Yes, they'll be better pagans. But you can put clean clothes on a man with a dirty heart and he's still got a dirty heart. That's why it's not, the social gospel is really religious humanism. Because it says, if we could just change the outside of man he would be better. Well, tell that to Joe Millionaire. I mean, they put him in a mansion. They gave him all these things, gave him a butler. What he's doing? He's still making moves on girls. He's doing what he did when he made $19,000 a year. He's doing it in a mansion. Now, you can give a guy a mansion, but his morals are going to be the same. Without a change in Christ, I guess none of you watched Joe Millionaire, did you? <laughs> Liars and thieves, all of you. <laughs> In chapter 3, Peter goes on after this miracle to explain what God was trying to do. Now, let me just say, evangelism is not a sales pitch. It's not a system. Evangelism is not a program. Evangelism is simply this. And if you read Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, you'll find it. First, God does a work. He does something that gets people's attention. And then somebody responds to God from that thing that gets their attention, and they go share it with somebody, and they respond to God, and the cycle just continues. It may be a tragedy. It may be an event. It may be a crisis. It may be some situation. But God does something that makes people say, is there more to life than what I'm experiencing? Especially this is true when you're trying to talk to adults. There has to be a situation, there has to be a circumstance where our attention is grasped and we realize, is, is there something more to life? What happens after we die? And in that moment, God gets somebody's attention and they who have been gotten a hold of by God, they begin to tell other people. And the cycle just continues. That's what this lame man does in chapter 4. They bring him before the religious leaders and say, hey, this is what happened to me. He shares his personal testimony. Now, secondly, we must learn, and I've kind of hit on this a lot recently, but I want you to understand it. We must learn to never go beyond Scripture in what we tell people about God. We must learn to never go beyond Scripture in what we tell people about God. Now, this is crucial. 
we are a church that believes in the inerrancy of the Word of God. That also means we can't go beyond what God says when we talk to people about what God says. The foundation of the Reformation, of which all Protestants are an outgrowth of that, is a high view of Scripture. That Scripture was viewed in its proper place. Not edicts from some man, not edicts from some council, but a high view of the Word of God. And we can never go beyond Scripture in what we tell people about God. Now, this may sound like a uh, digression, but it's one as I was working on this message weeks ago. Um, when we were up in the mountains, I was working on this message, and it was just where God just took me. And so what I want to do, here's the healing of this man, and what I want to talk about in this point is those who would teach that healing is a part of the atonement. In, in other words, there's this four-square concept that, that if, if you're saved, healing also goes with the atonement. And so what I, what I want to do is look at this because... What is being taught in many circles in the Christian faith is that we have a right to demand that God heal. And there's nowhere in the Bible where you find that. There are some who teach that God is as desirous to deliver us from sickness as He is from sin. But the problem of man is sin. Sickness is a result of the fall. Sin is a result of the fall. But Jesus came to heal, yes, but His mission was to save. And so I, I want us to, to look at this because any teaching is only as valid as its biblical foundation. If you don't have a biblical foundation, then your teaching is not accurate. And the Scripture says we are to accurately handle the word of truth. And accurately means to cut along a straight line or to cut a straight road. That's what the word accurately means. It means to make a straight line or a straight road. Now, it, that means that you, you, you get a ruler and you line it up and you draw a straight line. There are no bumps, there's no curves. If you just draw a line with your hand, it won't be perfectly straight unless you're incredible. But when you line something up and you draw that straight line, there is a line given by which there should be no diversion. And so what, what this is about is that, is that when God promises things, He only promises according to His Word. And so the question comes, is by His stripes we are healed a part of our salvation? Well, first of all, that's an Old Testament verse. And I'll remind you again that you don't treat the Old Testament like it's the New and you don't treat the New Testament like it's today. You deal with it in its context and in what God is saying in those verses. And I, I was thinking about this and I was thinking, you know, the people that are going to extremes on this, you know what they're doing? They're going outside the church to teach this and they're renting ballrooms in big hotels. And they're renting big, big arenas. Because even in their hearts they know the church won't buy that. Now, people in the church will. But there are people who are renting ballrooms today. And I asked a guy about one of them, I said, how come you never see him preaching in a church? He said, no church will have him. Because he's a scoundrel. 
He can't preach in a church because the church won't have him. And you see, if we're going to talk about healing, we need to talk about it biblically. And if the Bible is inerrant, and if it's the final authority, then every teaching that we hear, we need to ask the question, is that in the Bible? Fair enough? Well, three of you think so. Fair enough? It, it, is it in the Bible? That's, that's a valid question. Not did it sound good, not was it well presented, not did they have all kind of slides and PowerPoint, and you know, not that was it sweet and cute, not did it stir my heart, but is it in the Bible? That's the foundation for all doctrine. Now, many people claim that the Holy Spirit is not confined to the revelation in the Word of God. That the Holy Spirit speaks today in new ways, just like He did in the time of the prophets and in the time of the New Testament. The only thing wrong with that is that it's wrong. There's nothing to be added to the book. That's why Revelation's the last book, and that's why those verses are in the last chapter. There's nothing to be added. There's nothing to be taken away. You're not supposed to delete. You're not supposed to add what God has said in His completed revelation of His Word and His will for man. Now, you say, well, well, I've heard people, and it sounded like it was from God, and it sounded like the Holy Spirit led them to do that. Listen. Listen to me. There is no different, whether you're a Baptist or a Pentecostal, whether you're a Lutheran or whatever you are, there is no difference between adding to the Bible, now listen to me, don't get mad, listen. There is no difference between adding your revelation to the Bible than the Mormons adding another testament to the Gospels. None. There is no difference between you adding to the Bible and saying, I have a new revelation from God, no difference in that than the Muslims who say that Muhammad is the new revelation of God and Jesus is just a prophet. Because what you do when you add to the Bible is you make yourself God. And the last time I checked, he hasn't vacated the throne. He's still there. So don't add and don't say, you know, the Holy Spirit led me to a new truth. What did I say this morning? If it's new, it's not true. God has revealed everything we needed to know in His Word. Jude verse 3 says the faith, the faith, definite article, not a faith, not faith, the faith, definite article in the Greek, once for all delivered to the saints. Not continually being delivered to the saints, but once for all delivered. There's nothing to be added. It is a completed process. It's a definite article. The complete revelation of God. The word delivered in Jude 3 is a participle which indicates completion. And it stands complete. So what God has delivered to us is complete. Now, you say, well, I, I don't agree with that. Listen. Do you want to be at the mercy of what somebody would think up today or do you want to stand on something that's been around for 1,900 years? Because what if they're wrong? If they're wrong, you're in trouble because you put your faith in that. But this book is right, which means you can put your faith in it and you won't be wrong. 
when you put your faith in this book and what God says in His Word. Now, here's an important statement, and I want you to think about it. You can quote Scripture and not be speaking for God or speaking from God. Anybody remember who quoted Scripture on the Mount of Temptation? The devil did. By the way, the devil knows his Bible. Not his Bible, but he knows the Bible. The devil knows the Bible. He knows what his end is. That's why he's working to take as many people with him as he can. The devil knows what's going to happen. He doesn't know when. He's not omnipotent, but he knows what his end is. He knows that he's just on a chain, and he knows that ultimately he will be bound and cast into hell and there to remain for all eternity. Now, the devil can give experiences. The devil can imitate miracles. The devil can heal. The devil can impersonate gifts. The devil can quote Scripture. And so we have to be careful because I wish you'd write this down. The only part of your faith that is objective is the Bible. Everything else, your experiences are subjective. The only part of your faith that is objective is the Bible. Everything else is subjective. It's your experience, it's your feeling, it's your interpretation or whatever. J.I. Packer said, not every experience a Christian has is necessarily a Christian experience. Now there's another statement you need to write down. Doctrine is not based on the experiences of the apostles, but on the teachings of the apostles. And by the way, there are no apostles today. Not if you look at the Bible biblically. Because the apostles were people who physically, with their eyes, saw the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus has been resurrected now for over 1,900 years. And there's nobody alive today that was alive 1,900 years ago. So if you're going to take a biblical interpretation of the Word of God, there are no apostles today. But doctrine is built not on the experiences of the apostles, but on the teachings of the apostles. Now, Paul had a dramatic experience now, let's just, just kind of follow this thought and stay with me. We're going to be here a little bit tonight, so I hope you're okay. Just kind of stay with it. Paul had a dramatic experience on the Damascus Road, but do we demand of everybody who is saved to have that kind of experience? When Avery was baptized tonight, did we say, Avery, did God strike you down on a road and everybody around you blind and you heard the voice of God? We didn't ask that. Why? That was a unique experience. The only person that we know in the Bible that God did that to in the New Testament was Paul. When Peter had his dream and his vision, when he was supposed to go to Cornelius' house, when he saw the blanket, when God said, take and eat, has God told all of us to have a dream about a blanket? Man, I dream about bacon every day of my life. I don't need the Bible to tell me to do that. Especially crispy bacon. And ham and pork chops. Aren't you glad we're in the new covenant and we can eat unclean meat? I mean, it's just... 
Only in the South can we have that liberty. But I am so glad we can. Anyway, I'm not going to go there. But you see, nowhere does the Bible imply or teach that we are to have the experiences of the disciples. And, you know, I, I've heard people say, and I, I've read books and where people say, oh, we, we need to have what they had in the book of Acts. I haven't seen anybody lining up to get beaten and left for dead. You see, we want the good experience, but we don't want the bad ones. I haven't seen anybody let down over a wall in a basket saying, man, bless God, I'm living the Bible out. I'm having Paul's experience. We want the mountaintops, we just don't want the valleys. Bernard Ram says that the function of the Spirit is not to communicate new truth or to instruct in a matter unknown, but to illuminate what is revealed in Scripture. Now, the number one theme of the Bible is redemption. The purpose of the seven miracles recorded in the book of John, Gospel of John, John says these things have been written that you might know and you might believe. The purpose of the signs and the miracles in the Gospel of John was so that people would know and believe that Jesus was the Messiah. That's the purpose of this healing in Acts chapter 3. It was not healing in and of itself but it was healing for the purpose of the presentation of the gospel. Some people have replaced repent with God wants you well. Some have replaced be holy with you need this gift. Some have replaced you shall be witnesses with self-absorbed worship. Some have replaced the truth shall set you free with my experience will make you better. And most of what we hear, write it down, is not deep, it's muddy. I hear a lot of things, people, oh boy, that's so deep. That's not deep, it's muddy. It's muddy. It's not a clear teaching of the Word of God. Now, listen to what Warren Wiersbe says, and I think then it'll be on the screen. God promised healing and prosperity to Israel, but He never gave those promises to the New Testament church. There comes a time when children must learn to obey, not because obedience is profitable, but because it is right. Well, Jesus said, but we'll do greater works than him. Yes, and Peter did. You realize that Peter had more people respond to the gospel in one 10-minute sermon than Jesus had in three years? Why? Because Jesus left and the Holy Spirit came and He empowered Him and they were able to do greater works, reach more people. Why? Because now God was not limited to one person in one body on earth, the God-man Jesus Christ. Now God was spread out in the person of the Holy Spirit through every believer and millions of people are now able to go out and do greater works. Why? Because Jesus is not here, His Holy Spirit is, and His Holy Spirit empowers millions to do what Jesus taught us to do. Leon Morris says, in the narratives of Acts, there are few miracles of healing, but the emphasis is on the mighty work of conversion. On the day of Pentecost, more were added to the band of believers than throughout the entire earthly ministry of Jesus. I believe it is a false teaching that says if we had miracles, and if we had signs, and if we had wonders more people would believe. 
They had him at the time of Jesus and they killed him. Some of the very people he fed in the feeding of the 5,000 cried for him to be crucified. The people that he healed weren't even there to stand to his defense at his trial. Listen, Jesus said a foolish and perverse generation seeks signs. The word perverse also can be translated wicked. A wicked generation seeks signs. John MacArthur said, We must realize that even if Christians would heal everyone the way Jesus did, everyone would not believe the gospel. After all Jesus' healings, they crucified Him. Just one, uh, another note there. There are no references. At least I, I couldn't find any, and I tried to study to make sure I could make this statement. There are no references in the epistles, which are the letters to the church to teach the church how the church is to function. The writings of Paul, beginning with Romans and going all the way through First and Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, Revelation. There are no references in the pastoral epistles of the apostles to miracles or to healings. When the church had matured and Acts was finished about 40, 50 years into the life of the church, when the church had matured, the focus of the church was not on miracles and signs and wonders and on healings. The focus of the church was on sanctification, being holy people in an unholy world. You see, you can teach healing and not be holy. But you can't teach holiness and not be holy. You can talk about signs and wonders and live like the devil during the week. But you can't talk about sanctification and live like you want to. As I examined this, I looked at Paul... And I realized that Epaphroditus, his friend, his fellow worker, a man that he loved, Paul couldn't heal him. Paul prayed three times that God would take away his thorn in the flesh. It was some physical problem that Paul had. And Paul prayed three times that God would take it away, and God didn't do it. Now, there are people in the Christian faith who say the reason you're not healed is because you don't have enough faith. That means I can have more faith than Paul? I've got to have more faith than Paul. If that's true, I'm sunk. I'm sunk. A man came to Ron Dunn one day and told him the reason he had problems with depression is because he just didn't believe God enough. Two greatest men of faith I've ever met were Manly Beasley and Ron Dunn. There is a reference in the Scripture to the prayer of faith. And I remember calling Manly one day when Monica, his sister-in-law, was dying. And Manly was hooked up to dialysis in his room, and I asked him how he was doing. He said, I've been begging God to let me pray the prayer of faith for Monica, and he won't do it. 
He said, you know, I've only prayed it for two or three people. And everybody God's released me to pray that for, God's healed them. Now, who would you want healed more than somebody in your family? But he said, God wouldn't release me to pray that prayer. Now, I don't know anybody who could believe God more for God to do something miraculous in Manly Beasley. I wish you could have known him. Ron used to say, I'd love to preach with Manly Beasley because when I didn't know how to believe God for a meeting, he could. You ask Bill Stafford if Manly Beasley knew how to believe God for something. He did. I mean, he just did. He's the greatest man of faith I've ever met. If there, if there were anybody added to the Hall of Fame of Faith, Manly Beasley's name would have been put there. But you know, Manly had incurable sicknesses and God healed him of them. And he lived another 20 years. You know, Ron used to say, I'd go by to say goodbye to Manly because I knew he was going to be dead by the next time I tried to go by. And he'd just keep getting up and getting out of the hospital. You know, and his story is a remarkable story. I wish every story turned out that way. Folks, I have prayed for people to be healed that God hasn't healed. And you have too. I've been as sincere, I've been as prayed up as I knew how to be, I've believed God as much as I knew how to believe God, and God hasn't healed them. Does that mean I didn't have enough faith? I don't think so. I've prayed for God to heal people. This church, I have seen this church on its knees for people by the hundreds praying for healing for somebody. And God didn't heal them. You see, that tells me that it's not a lack of faith. It is just an understanding that God chooses sovereignly somehow to heal some and not to heal others. And I want to tell you, some choice, choice people have died that I prayed for. That I wanted to believe God that they would be healed. That I wanted to believe God that He would do something miraculous. Now, you understand, I am not suggesting that God does not heal because He does. And there are testimonies to that effect in this room of God reaching down and healing. And by the way, every time you come out of surgery and walk out of the hospital, God healed you. He used doctors to do it. But God is the one who heals the body up. And every day that you have of health, it's God. I believe that God heals many people, and I believe we should pray. And I believe we should ask God. But I do not believe we should demand that God do it and come to God as if we think it is our right to demand that He heal. Jesus went before His Father and said, Lord, if it's Your will, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but Thine be done. When we can get to the point or we say, God, not my will, but yours be done. I think that's when we get on praying ground. Because then we don't have any more agendas. And we don't have any more outlines that we hand to God to help Him out on 
how He can work for His glory. Should we pray? Yes. Should we believe and hope? Yes. Should we demand and think it's a part of our right as believers? No. Because I want to tell you something, folks. You're going to get to heaven one of two ways. You're either going to die or the rapture is going to come. That's the only two ways you're going to get to heaven. Now, you know, I told the staff this morning, we were talking about this this morning, I said, you know, I said, I don't want to take the next bus. I'd like to live a long time. But I don't want to live in Albany for the rest of my life and all of eternity. Do you want to fight gnats for a billion years? I've got enough faith that God just keeps healing me, just keeps re-energizing my body. Here I am. 47 billion A.D. Bless God. I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) To be absent from the body is present with the Lord. For me to live is and to die is gain. Well, if you want to read a good book on it, I would encourage you to read Ron's book, Will God Heal Me? Because it is the most biblically based book I've ever read on healing. And by the way, it was very difficult for him to get it published because they wanted him to take these kind of references out because they said it won't sell well if you say that. And Ron said, I would rather not sell and tell the truth than to sell and deceive people. Thirdly, and quickly, anything God does is so Jesus might be preached and decisions made. Now, I'm not going to take time. We've taken a long time, and I'm just going to kind of scan through uh, verses 12 through 26. This is a sermon in and of itself. But did you notice that this man was healed? And I mean, people were amazed. They were in awe, and they didn't have a healing service. But Peter said, uh, by the way, it's time for me to preach a sermon. And so he began to preach. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you so amazed at this? And why do you gaze at us? As if by our power or piety we had made him walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the Holy and Righteous One. Holy and Righteous One, by the way, is a name for Messiah. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the Prince of Life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses." Verse 17, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. They were full of amazement. They were on the verge of hero worship. They were on the verge of giving honor and glory to Peter and John, and Peter immediately turns their attention to Christ, and he does three things. First of all, he states the facts. You're guilty of crucifying the holy and righteous one. 
He states the facts. He tells them what they've done. You delivered him up. And about 18 times in Acts chapter 3, he uses that personal pronoun, you. You delivered him up. You demanded a murderer instead of the author of life. Secondly, he not only states the facts, he stands on the facts. To which we are witnesses. Now that word means that they were irrefutable, that they were witnesses that would hold up in a court of law. That if taken into a court of law, their witness of the events that transpired would stand up as factual witnesses. And thirdly, he offered God's prescription for guilt. He offered God's prescription for guilt. They were guilty as charged. There were witnesses that they were guilty, but God said, I've got a remedy for you. Repent and return. Those are action words. Now, when you repent and return, there are two results. One is forgiveness of sins and two, seasons of refreshing. When you repent and return, there is forgiveness of sins and there are seasons of refreshing. Verse 26 For you first, he's talking to the Jews, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Now look at what he's done. These Jews were not expecting a suffering Savior, neither do we. These Jews wanted political clout and economic power, so do we. But God sent a suffering Savior to die on the cross for our sins, and he goes first to the Jews the very ones that cried for the crucifixion, the very ones that said that innocent blood should be shed, the very ones that handed him over to Pilate. And God said, I'm giving you the first opportunity to come back to me, to come to Christ. To the very people that had killed him, he offered forgiveness if they would repent and return. Vance Havner said, we can never be blessed until we learn that we can bring nothing to Christ but our need. Let's pray together. You've listened patiently tonight, and I'm grateful for it. And I would tell you about this sermon, what I would say about any sermon that I preach. Do your study of the Word of God and see if it's true. Not some book that some man has written, but do your study of Scripture and see what Scripture says. Some of you tonight need to repent and to be baptized. You need to come to Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. When we leave this place in in just a moment, I'm going to ask that our staff members are standing at the exit doors in the back. And if you need to talk to somebody about how to be saved and how you can come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to ask our staff to be there. They have white name tags on. You'll be able to find them and spot them very easily. If you can't find one, find a member and say, can you show me a staff member? And they'll, they'll point one out. Some of us need to repent 
of trying to put words in God's mouth. Of trying to make God into our image and not into the image that is revealed in the Word of God. Some of us need to repent of being casual about a faith that cost these early disciples their lives. History tells us that every one of those apostles was a martyr except for John who died in exile. In many ways a martyr because he was exiled from his people and from the church, the Isle of Patmos. Some of us might need to repent tonight of coming arrogantly before God and making demands instead of boldly approaching the throne of grace with humility before God. You see, no child that honors his parents makes demands. They make requests. And no child of God should come before God with a demanding attitude, but with respectful and humble request. If you being evil, the Scripture says, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give to you? God's not a tyrant. God does not enjoy the times when we're suffering and when we're hurting and when people we love are hurting. But God understands what we sometimes forget. We live in a sinful and fallen world. And this world is not our home. We're just passing through. Vance Havner said after his wife died and he prayed for her to be healed and Billy Graham prayed for her to be healed and a lot of other people prayed for her to be healed. Vance Havner said after his wife died, sometimes God snuffs out our brightest star so that we might see His eternal light. Sometimes God snuffs out our brightest star so that we might see His eternal light. Father, I ask You to be our strength and our shield, our portion, our deliverer. Lord, we are helpless. We are a needy people. In every one of our hearts, in every one of our lives, there are situations going on that stress us and confuse us and there are prayers that you did not answer the way we wanted you to answer them but it doesn't mean you didn't love us and it doesn't mean you did not love the people we prayed for
Remind us, Father, not to hold on to this world, sir.